Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Teach Me to Talk, the podcast. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist, and I'm so happy that you've joined me for today's show. Today we're going to be talking about a very important skill that toddlers must use before words emerge. This is skill number four, and it's joint attention. And if you've not been listening to this series, oh, I just highly encourage you to go back and listen to the previous shows before we do today's show. Even if you think that this is the primary issue that your child is having, or even if you're a therapist like me and you're working with children and think, oh, gosh, I've got to figure out how to get some more joint attention going, here's why. All of the skills that we've been discussing in this series, skills toddlers must use before words emerge, are really sequential. And I don't mean sequential in the way that you have to have totally mastered number one before you go to number two or that... You know, a kid may not have skill number seven or ten, but he has all the the other skills. I'm not saying that way, that linear of an approach or a developmental sequence, but really the skills do build one on another. And so let's take, for example, last week's show was about developing an attention span. And here's the truth. (laughs) Until a kid has a pretty good attention span and can stay with something for very long, He's probably not going to be that great with joint attention either. So, and then then the skill before that, which was number two, was response to people. So, again, he's not really going to develop an attention span and stay with you with uh, whatever you're trying to share together unless he knows how to respond to you. And so, again, if you haven't listened to the previous shows, go back and do that. You may listen to this show first and then go back and pick up so that you can kind of fill in your gaps. But it really is information that I think is best digested (laughs) when you go in the order that uh, I've established here for you in the show. Okay, before we move on, I forgot to do anything else. I want to be sure to plug the West Virginia Speech and Hearing uh, Association or state convention. I told them that I would do that on uh, Teach Me to Talk, and so I'm going to use the podcast to do that. I'm speaking there on Friday, April 15th, and teaching the six-hour version of Steps to Building Verbal Imitation Skills in Toddlers, so I'm so excited about that. And I always have a blast every time I go to West Virginia. So love, love, love that state. I'm so excited. Secondly, big announcement, I think next week or the next, hopefully, we'll be finished enough with Is It Autism, uh, the new course I started teaching last fall that's based on the Kindle book that I wrote this um, in the summer of 2015. That is going to be um, close enough <laughs> to being finished to be available for pre-sale. So if you are not on my email list, I would suggest you get on that. And some people last week emailed me after the podcast and said, how do I get on the email list? Or really what they said is put me on the email list. I can't do that because you have to be able to, I want you to do that for yourself. So, you, so you've chosen that yourself. So in order to do that, go to teachmetotalk.com. Scroll down a little bit until you see a green banner 
in the middle of the page or maybe a third of the way down the page and enter your email address there. You'll have to confirm it, do a couple of other things, and then you'll start to be on my email list. You'll get some initial emails at the beginning. There's four or five that kind of come automatically over the course of the first few days. And then you'll get the weekly or so updates that I send. But the most important reason to be on that email list is so that you get the pre-sale price for this new course. Uh, I'll also go ahead and say this. I don't think I've said it yet, but there's an accompanying therapy manual that's coming out with this book. It may not come out quite at the same time because I'm not as far along with it as the the course is, but uh, super, super, super resource for therapists who work with children who have red flags for autism, even before they're diagnosed or when you just get a kid that you know in your heart is at risk for autism and you're looking for the most effective <laughs> treatment methods for working with that child to really get things going, um, that is going to be, a, uh, again, a fantastic resource for therapists. It's also going to be written in that same kind of homework format that I use so that parents will be able to utilize this resource as well, too, so that you'll have their 10 different approaches or 10 different um, modalities or methods, whatever word you want to plug in there, to try or to think about for children who are toddlers who have red flags for autism, and then you'll have several, at least, I think there's probably at least 10 versions of, of or 10 ideas per therapy modality. So look at that. That's 100 different therapy activities that you'll get in that um, new therapy manual. So I'm so excited about that and can't wait to get that out. All right, so let's back up to where we were and talk about joint attention. Now, if you'll remember when we were doing the overview shows about the skills that toddlers have to use before words come in, I defined joint attention for you, but let's revisit that in case that's a new word for you. Now, joint attention means that a child can share or shift his attention between something that he's paying attention to and someone who's sharing that event. And so let's talk about some examples of joint attention. Let's pretend that a child is sitting in his stroller, and let's say he's with dad, and he's they're, they're in a busy street or they're walking the street or in a city or somewhere like that, and he notices a school bus. And what would he do? A kid with good joint attention not only looks at the bus, but he also looks back up at his dad to try to get his dad's attention as if he's going to say, hey, dad, check out that bus. And again, he's doing this without words. He's doing it with his little facial expression, with his eyes. He may even point. He may somehow gesture toward the bus. If dad's not looking at it, he might even go, ah, 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 to get dad's attention. So that, again, he's doing everything he can to initiate or to share that experience with dad and get dad's attention. That's what we mean by joint attention. And let's think about this, too. I always, I always try to use this example or use this explanation because I think it's so powerful. 
when you've never heard of a concept of joint attention before and you're, you're first starting to think about it and learn about it, or if you're a therapist, if you need a better way to explain this to parents, joint attention always, always, always involves three things. It's really a triad of attention. And I always try to credit uh, an article I read from Vanderbilt University years and years ago, and I thought it was a fantastic way to explain it. It was in a publication for parents. And I wish I had the exact title, but I don't, but I do want to give them credit for that uh, for for that little bit of terminology, but triad of attention. And so what does that mean? It means you have the child, which is one part of that three-piece puzzle here. So you have the kid, you have you or an adult or someone else that he's communicating with. And again, that's even without words. He doesn't necessarily have to be talking to use joint attention. And then something that you're going to share. So a toy. Um, uh, another kind of object, a, a cookie. A cookie might be your <laughs> third part here. If, he, if, you, if you are holding the cookie and he wants the cookie or he wants you to get him a cookie, that could be our third piece here. It could be an event like swinging or sliding. It could be or you know, something like an activity, jumping on the bed, playing with toys in the bathtub. Again, you've got to have those three things there, and what you're really looking for is not if the child pays attention to either you or the toy. You want him to share that. You want him to be able to move his attention from the toy to look up at you, make sure you're checked in, make sure you're paying attention, make sure you're with him, including you, and then back to the toy again. So it's really that shifting that we're looking for, that sharing. Let me give you another example. Let's say a mom is in a grocery store with a little girl, and let's say they round the corner to go into the produce department, and her little girl loves oranges, and mom sees the biggest bin of oranges ever, and she knows that her child is going to be delighted since that's her very favorite food. So mom starts pointing to the oranges, and she says, there's what you want. Now, a little girl with established joint attention skills will look to see where mom is pointing. She'll follow mom's point. And not only will she do that, then she'll look back at her mom. She may grin at her, smile or giggle as if to say, hey, you're right, I do want that. And so, again, she's sharing that experience with mom. She probably looks back at the oranges again. She may even reach for the oranges and then look at mom like, get me over there. I want some of those. That's joint attention. Okay, let, let me give you another example. Let's say that we have another child who's playing alone in his toy room or, or in his bedroom, and he breaks part of his toy or he can't get some part of what he's doing to work. What does he do? A child with with good joint attention or one that's, you know, moving along knows, hey, I don't just scream here until somebody comes in to see what's wrong, although that's very common in toddlers and babies. We certainly expect that. But a child who really understands that he can initiate this communicative process and that he can use other people to do things for him, he will purposefully walk around until he finds someone to help him. He might see, let's just say mom is standing talking on her phone. Maybe she's multitasking. She's talking on the phone and she's cooking. So she's not really paying attention to him coming in the room. What might a child with well-established joint attention do? Well, he might, uh, if he's talking, you know, he'll say, hey, mom, until she looks up. But let's say he's not using words yet. He's not really 
wanting to vocalize, what are some things he could do? He could walk over to her, tug her pants and just to get her attention while she's standing there. You know, if, if she doesn't automatically notice that he's entered the room. And then when he sees that he's got a little bit of her attention, he doesn't just wait on her to discover that broken toy. What does he do? He lifts his little hands up and he shows her the toy. And even without words, what's he saying? He's saying, Mom, I've got a problem. <laughs> I need you to fix this for me. Look, it's broken. And so, again, he's looking at the toy, and he's looking back at Mom, and he's looking at the toy, and he's looking at his mom. That's what we want to look for. When we see children who don't have joint attention skills, they either kind of get their focus, I call it radar locked, <laughs> on one part of this, and they're not able to include that other person or the object. And this happens a lot in therapy. And I bet if you are a, a, a speech pathologist or another kind of early intervention therapist, you've seen this a lot. You have something that you know a child is going to love, or you're in their home and you haven't brought anything with you, any toys, but you, you see something over in the corner and you think, oh, yeah, this will be fun. Let's do this. But as soon as you get the object or the toy, or the food, or whatever you're doing, you show it to the kid, and then suddenly it's as if you have disappeared because that child no longer pays attention to you. If it's a snack, this has happened a lot with me in therapy. You know, I'll bring out a cookie or a goldfish or, what, uh, you know, an M&M, whatever a kid might want, and as soon as he sees that, that little treat there, all he does is look at the treat. He never looks back at me. Now, he may try to wrestle it out of my hand. <laughs> he may whine. He may do something, but he really doesn't know, hey, I should look back at Laura. I should I should look at her face to see what she's doing. You know, I should read her Nonverbal cues, is she looking like she's going to give it to me? Is she looking like she expects me to do something for this treat here? So, again, they're not picking up information. And that's why joint attention is essential for language development. Let's just take another example. Let's say a little boy is playing with Thomas the Train. But unless he notices that mom is there and looking at the train and talking about the train too, unless he's including her and not tuning her out, he is very unlikely to learn the words associated with Thomas. So true joint attention, again, goes that step further where he's not only, you know, looking at mom and listening to mom and, um, you know, just kind of passively, he's actively including mom as he's playing with Thomas too. She hasn't disappeared. She's still there. She's still part of that play routine, even if he has his very, very, very favorite thing in the world. And this is what we see a lot in children who have those red flags for autism that we were talking about. Those kinds of, uh, the kinds of deficits that we're talking about here are kids who, again, may have pretty good attention spans, meaning that they, if they like something, they can stay with it a long, 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 long time, but they have not learned how to include other people as a part of that. So we have to notice when this is happening, and sometimes parents aren't super aware uh, that this is what's happening because when they see that their child likes something, they automatically begin to talk about it. They're telling, you know, it, let's just say it's, um, let's say it's an airplane, a toy airplane, and so they start saying, oh, look, it's your airplane. Whoa, airplane. That airplane can fly. Oh, yes, you are flying it as the child is flying it. And so they're doing a super job of providing 
fantastic language there. They're labeling, they're giving some action words, they're talking exactly about what their child is paying attention to, but what's missing there? The child isn't really including them in the conversation. And so they're just, again, as I said before, kind of radar locked in on the plane and and tuning out everything else that happens. And when we see that, we are concerned about language development in general because we know that that child is missing opportunities to link meaning to words and to hear all of that fantastic teaching that that mom is doing with um, the language strategies she's using. So establishing joint attention is a really, really, really important goal. So let's talk about ways that we can do that. Now, when we first start thinking about joint attention, usually the, the factor isn't that the child isn't paying attention to what we want them to pay attention to. <laughs> well, it could be that too, but let me just back up. I'm kind of getting digging myself in a hole here. Most of the time, it's that the kid will pay attention to what he wants to pay attention to. He's just somehow left another person out of that. So the eye contact is missing. The checking in with another person is missing. That including and sharing piece is missing. So that's really what you have to work on first, in my experience. Sometimes when we um, work so hard to get a kid to pay attention to a new toy, which is a lot of, you know, or a new experience like we talked about last week, that goes a little quicker and a little faster, and that's usually not the issue that most of our little friends with autism or even let's just stop and say any kid with a language delay could have um, an issue with joint attention, eye contact, looking at faces. Those things are not as huge of a concern for children just with general language delays, but certainly... Uh, children with autism are going to have more difficulty with joint attention because that's a core deficit. But what I'm trying to say here is sometimes even children who are not on the spectrum but who have severe, significant language issues also don't display uh, joint attention, and we have to work on that. Now, it may not be the degree of difficulty that a child who is going to eventually be diagnosed with autism would have, but just because there's a hint of a problem with joint attention, don't automatically assume, well, this kid has to be on the spectrum because that's the only diagnosis associated with a lack of eye contact or a lack of joint attention because that's not true either. So let's talk about eye contact as kind of the place to start. And again, we, we reviewed some things like this in a couple of shows ago in show number 278. So go back and look at those strategies about getting down on your child's level, putting yourself where the child is more likely to look, making yourself so fun that a child can't resist looking at you and listening to you. We talked a lot about doing what a child likes. We talked about emphasizing interaction and playfulness more than any other goal to really get that going. Uh, and again, we talked about specific ways that we could reward attention, particularly if a child is having difficulty responding to his or her name or learning to look at you when his name is called. So go back and review that show or listen to that show if you've not heard it. These ideas are going to build on those ideas and those strategies are what you should get going first before you move on to these, even though a lot of these are kind of related. But remember what we said with these skills that we're talking about in this podcast series all 
being loosely related and loosely sequential. And so to begin with just help teaching a child to respond to you and getting all those initial strategies in place, that's where you want to start. And then you're going to move on to the things that we're talking about today. So again, we talked about in show 278, and remember this is show number 280, we talked about how important it is to do what a child likes at the, especially at the beginning, because then you don't have to fight for that attention. You're starting with something that you know he's more likely to want to do. And so we're continuing on with that theme in using toys or objects that are interesting and that will entice a child to want to look at you. And we talked in, in that first show, or this show 278, the show I'm referencing here, about holding objects in front of our faces to make it more likely that a child would look at us. And so uh, when I've taught, I remember one time talking to a mom about that. She said, well, basically you're telling me you want me to just sit everything on my nose. Yes, but no. <laughs> you don't really want to put everything right there. But for a child who is having difficulty looking at you and including you, oh, it works brilliantly to bring what you're talking about or what you want to direct his attention to right in front of your face. So, again, it's not as hard for him to shift his attention between you and what you want him to look at, too. Here are some other ideas that some some um, we haven't mentioned before, I don't think, that may be helpful if you're really – enticing a child to look at you that you want to do some different things you and I've done some of these in therapy and have had some some pretty good successes with them try doing something that directs attention to your face so let's say if I'm playing potato heads with a child and he or she isn't really looking at me I may put the potato head glasses on my face so that he has a reason to kind of look right into my eyes there another thing might be uh, with the potato head game and I, I've done this a lot I think I've done it on therapy tip of the week and you've seen, if you've seen any of my live courses I think I have this clip in at least one of those courses where I have a potato head hat on my head and I pretend to sneeze it off you know ha 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 choo, and then have the you know put my head down so that the hat falls off hopefully right in front of the child that's a great way to get a kid to look at you and if you're doing making a big production about your or I, 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 I choo, you know as you leave up that anticipatory um, reaction or or your anticipatory uh, utterance there where you're using your body and your face and your voice to really create some excitement so that he has a reason to look at you that's a great great way to do it um, I have a friend who is a developmental interventionist who's been on the show and she did several years ago she did a therapy tip of the week with me about looking uh, use, do, using some different kinds of ideas to get a child to look at her and establish eye contact and she has a cute little song where she puts stickers on her face and has the child pull stickers off as they sing this little song together i'll try to go back and link that um, little video if i can because it was so cute and i thought it was just an ingenious way to really entice a kid to look at you especially a kid who already likes stickers who are kind of into that tactile play anyway. That would be a super thing. One idea that I use all the time is when I play with bubbles with a child, I hold that bubble wand right in front of my nose there, right in front of my eyes. So again, he is more likely to look at me 
when the toy or the object that we're using to play is right there in front of my eyes too. So that's a good, good tip. That tip is also in a bigger explanation about how to do that in a therapy tip of the week of mine from, you know, a couple years ago with bubbles. So if you've not watched that one, go back and look at it. You could you could go to the website, teachmetotalk.com, click on Therapy Tip of the Week and scroll down until you see the one that's titled Bubbles. I think I have a red shirt on in there, but I talk about how I do that and have some good visual examples about how you could use bubbles in that way. All right, let's move on to the next idea. For a child who seems to avoid looking directly at you, Try introducing eye contact with play with a mirror. Now, sometimes mirrors are hard with toddlers because it kind of feels like, you know, you're in, say, the lick fest. <laughs> Do you know what I mean by that? Boy, they just want to get up, you know, on that mirror and lick it and kiss it and do all kinds of things like that. You may want, if you have a kid that's really into that and hasn't played a lot with the mirror and who just is fascinated with that, you may have to introduce the mirror for a while before you're able to really use it in the way that we're intending to get joint attention going. But just for everyday use, you know, a parent may want to use a mirror just in really small doses throughout the day, holding her child up to see herself in the mirror while they're in the bathroom, before bath, after bath, you know, if they're going to brush teeth. I know a lot of parents will... Um, sit on the floor to brush a kid's teeth or do it in the bathtub. But, but what I talk to parents about doing, if their child is safe enough, is to put them up on the counter and you'll just kind of stand behind them or do something so that they don't fall or jump off and really look at your child in the mirror and, again, do some kind of animated things, funny things, make some noises or talk or do something so that the child will want to watch you through the mirror. And a lot of children with autism will do that, and it's more comfortable with them than making that face-on-face eye contact. Let me tell you the best story that I have ever, ever, ever encountered in my entire career with a mom who did some of this with her little girl. Now, this little girl had... Down syndrome, and we usually think about children with Down syndrome as extremely social, but this little girl was so busy that eye contact was really, really hard for her. So she placed a full-length mirror, and she was, a, she was a kid, too, that I didn't start with. I took over for another therapist while she was on maternity leave, and so it's not a family that I introduced. So it's someone who had some strategies going and had some things going, and then I kind of came in midstream. But they began to really play these little games where the mom took her full-length mirror off her door, and it was just one of those um, over-the-door kind of mirrors that you get at Walmart or Target or, you know, Bed Bath & Beyond, you know, those kind of cheaper, long mirrors. She put it on the floor sideways so that it was there all the time so the little girl got used to it. And periodically through the day, the mom would sit down on the floor and have her little girl eventually, you know, at the beginning I think she might have pulled her over and purposefully tried to get her interested in playing there. But eventually all mom had to do was just kind of sit there and her little girl would come over to play with her. And they would just, you know, mom would get down on the floor right on her stomach there and just lay there with her face right there in the mirror and the little girl was just totally captivated by her mom doing that and would look you know, look in the mirror to see her mom's face and then look right in her mom's face and then back in the mirror. It was so much fun for the both of them. So 
even if you start with that for just your kid just stays with you there for 30 seconds and just takes just a little bit of a glimpse of you in the mirror, still a fun, fun way to kind of get that going. And let's, let's talk about here why eye contact could be hard for some kids, especially with kids, again, that have that, that increased risk for autism. Lots of those children have sensory processing differences, which means that they don't process or they don't filter incoming information that they see or hear or feel in the same way with their little brains and their bodies as we do. And so for them, eye contact, which seems so natural and so normal, is is pretty hard and it can even be uncomfortable. And when you hear adults with autism talk about autism or joint attention or eye contact a lot of time or that social interaction piece they'll say man it really kind of freaks me out to look at people in the eye it makes me squeamish it makes me you know kind of squirm and you know we've all had experiences like that where for one reason or another it's been you know somebody you don't know very well or you've maybe caught someone looking at you and you're not quite sure why they are staring you down. We've all been in that situation where eye contact has felt a little bit uncomfortable. So let's just think about that and use that experience to relate to our child or the children that we're working with who also have difficulty with eye contact. So try to look at it like um, in that kind of different way that that's more accepting rather than, oh, you know, this is something else he can't do. Or, you know, sometimes a parent will say something like, he just will not look at me. He just, he just won't. He just refuses to do it. And that kind of gets a parent or an adult in more of a belligerent role or more of an authoritative, I'm going to make him do this role. And then they're likely to do things like, you know, try to hold a kid's face and say, you will look at me, you know, those kinds of things. Gosh, we can do that, but it's not pleasant or fun and rarely results in the kind of joyful, pleasurable interaction and attention that we want to see from a child. So, again, if you'll think about eye contact and helping a child learn how to look at you in less threatening kinds of ways by using a mirror like we've talked about um, or, or just ways to get that going. Let me tell you another idea. One thing that you might do is, and we talked a little bit about this in show number 278, is really experiment with different positions to make eye contact more likely. So I, I know I talked about in that previous show about some kids do better if you're kind of across the room when they first begin to look at you. Some children really can't do that face-on-face -face eye contact because, again, it's a little too uncomfortable for them for whatever reason. Internally, it just feels icky or feels off for them to do it. So you might try to be beside a child like that when you're playing instead of face-to-face. -face. And, again, this is not so that they avoid to face eye contact forever. It's just to get it going. It's just to get it started. So try experimenting with some of those different positions. Other things that may make it more likely, and I know I've mentioned this example, but I want to mention it again here. It might be that a kid, you have him on his back, 
and, you know, he's laying on the floor on his back and you are sitting right in front of him and doing something like this little piggy where you're counting his toes. Do you know that game? Or uh, the, this little piggy game is, you know, this little piggy went to market. This little piggy stayed home. This little piggy had roast beef. This little piggy had nine. And this little piggy cried, wee, 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 all the way home. And so you're touching his toes for each of those little uh, lines of that rhyme. And then you tickle all the way up his leg to his neck, to his belly. Um, so while he plays that game and so he has an opportunity to look at you because you're sitting right there in front of him or for a kid who likes numbers who likes counting this is what I started to say too you may you know count his toes or that song I learned it as 10 little Indians but you might sing it as 10 little toes you know one little two little three little toes four little five little six little toes seven little eight little nine little toes ten little toes however you want to sing it you know that's not the point your point here is you want to give him a reason to look at you and some kids can do it better in various positions so just experiment to see what would make it more likely for him to look at you some kids do look at you more when you sing versus when you talk that's an idea that you might try as well. Some kids won't look at you if you're talking in a regular tone of voice, but you start to whisper. And they look at you because that they've kind of tuned in like, hey, she's doing something different here. <laughs> she's, she's, I'm not able to hear her like I was. So try different things. Getting under a blanket with a child. Getting in a little playhouse. Getting under a table. Sometimes those small, tight spaces make it a lot more likely that a child will look at you too. Um, sometimes when we're playing kinds of games, we need to be more animated to get a child to look at us. But sometimes with these kinds of kids, especially kids with those really overly sensitive or hyper-responsive systems, sometimes those kids talking almost makes it impossible for a child to look at you. So with those kinds of kids, you may do better not to say very much at all while you're working on eye contact. Now, you're still going to be kind of playful and fun. Uh, otherwise, I think that, you know, a kid, I've tried this with some kids who look at me like, you know, uh, are you crazy? You know, what, what are you doing? They don't really get what you're doing with them. You still want to make it fun and 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 interactive and engaging, uh, but you may need to talk less because, again, as we're talking about children with different sensory processing systems, they may not be able to look at you and listen to you at the same time. It's just overwhelming. You're trying to get them to use too many different senses at the same time. So for those kids, you may have to talk less and, and again, do that playing with your facial expressions or even just your voice where you're not necessarily using words, where you may be tickling them and saying things like, ooh, or maybe not even tickling them, maybe just looking at them or humming. Humming would be a good thing to try here. Just anything you can do to get that eye contact where they are looking at you for longer periods of time, go with what works here and figure out what you can do to get that going. Uh, we've talked about social games a lot on our previous shows with, and what I mean by social games are those little things like peekaboo or ride a little horsey or row, row your boat or even something like chase so that you can get that back and forth interaction with the child. And again, as you're playing these games, you really want to pause and give the child a reason to continue the game and a reason to want you to be in it and pausing 
to let, uh, kind of as the let's say you're playing chase and <laughs> you may hold back a little bit. You may get the game of chase going where he's running and you know you say something like ready set go and then you're going to chase him and catch him and pick him up and swing him around in the air or you know gently throw him to the ground and tickle him. However you end that game. To start the next turn, you know, he may get up and start to run away from you, but just wait. Wait for him to look at you. Wait for him to turn around and look at you as if he's saying, you know, aren't you going to get me or come on. You know, and again, all of this is all of this is without words. We're talking about children who are in that pre-verbal phase. So we really want them to learn to use eye contact and learn to use joint attention as a way to get your attention or, as we said earlier, to initiate that contact. And so you have to, for some kids, you have to really build that into the game where they learn, okay, she's not going to chase me again until I turn around and look at her or she's not going to start that next round of, ring around the rosies or or anything until I look at her and until I initiate that interaction and trying to get her attention. I have a mom right now that I'm working with who does this so fabulously with her little boy. He's on the spectrum and he loves watching TV. And we're doing texts, we're doing some signs, doing lots of doing some structured teaching, lots of different strategies with this little guy. But she's done such a good job of when he initiates a request with her, which is a pretty new skill for him, of making him or waiting him out for him to look her right in her eyes, right in her face before she'll do what she wants him to do. And again, he's a little guy that's nonverbal. Like I said before, he's primary, He's just learning signs. He's learning pictures pretty well. But even with um, getting texts, getting his little picture exchange communication system, when she's waiting on that picture for him to use it, and now he's to the phase where he can take a picture to her from across the room, or even if she's sitting there right beside him waiting on that picture with her extended hand, she holds her hand up right in front of her face. And I I started to talk about television. He loves television. It's just his very favorite thing in the world, and we really use that as a way to teach him how to request. But when she's getting that picture of the remote control from him, or if he just skips the picture and straight to the remote, <laughs> she puts her hand right in front of her face. She gets right down on his le- his level, right down on the floor with him, and she has her hand right there so that he has to look at her. And after weeks and months and months of doing this, he is making better eye contact with her all the time now. But she had to start really, really at that simplest level with I'm going to wait you out with something that I know that you really really want now again I don't think she did it every single time he's you know throwing a fit she doesn't wait until he's super super mad to do it she's just worked it into things that they do all day long so that's a great strategy to talk to parents about really really teaching them how to position themselves so that they're more likely to get eye contact and think about ways with them that they can do it all day long. If they're about to give a kid a snack, you know, they can hold that, um, you know, or a drink, hold that sippy cup right in front of their faces so that, again, a child learns to look at a parent's face and then back uh, at the object that he wants. And this mom does a good job, too, of, and I haven't talked to her about this, but I'm going to next week now that I'm thinking about it. She does a really good job of, 
even as she as after she gets the card or after she gets the remote or if he's handed her a toy or whatever she wants to do, she does a pretty good, a really good job of putting it down so that then he's kind of forced to watch that object go away and then look right back at mom. And that's exactly what we're talking about with shifting that attention and learning to include both pieces in his uh, focus there. Let's talk about one other a big thing here with joint attention, a big part of joint attention is learning to follow other people's gestures. So pay attention to pointing. And by that, I mean not necessarily the child pointing, although that's super, super, super important. And we have a whole show devoted to that in two weeks where we're going to be talking about how to teach a child to use gestures. But what I'm talking about here with joint attention is that a child is really able to follow a parent point and able to really um, get that he's supposed to try to look at and find what the parent is pointing to. And this is so shocking (laughs) sometimes for parents either way. So if you've had a typically developing child and then all of a sudden you realize oh my goodness, he understands that he's supposed to look at what I'm pointing to and, and he, you know, you, you're kind of amazed at typical development there. And then you, or let's just say it's the other way where you just, your child just automatically learned how to do that. You didn't think too much about it until you have, have a child who's not doing that. Or let's say you're a parent and you're, you're listening because your only child has a language delay and you're trying to figure out what's going on and figure out ways to help them. But you haven't really noticed before that your child is not following your point or not his attention is not easily redirected to what you want him to pay attention to. And then you maybe you see another child do it and you think, oh, my goodness, my child never does that. So it can certainly go either way. Uh, let me just say, I, because I've been a speech pathologist for over 20 years and I've worked with tons of children and, you know, we get used to as therapists <laughs> working with children with delays and with disorders and so the kids who aren't doing things and the language isn't coming as naturally or joint attention may not have evolved as naturally as it should have and then you're exposed to lots of typically developing children and you realize just how easily that skill comes to them. Uh, last year I was participating in a study or it's still an ongoing study but last year is when I did the initial assessments and I'm working with Uh, Dr. Kress from University of Nebraska at Lincoln, and she's standardizing a new test for infants. And so as part of that, she's had speech-language pathologists from all over the country, and even um, I think there's some in the Caribbean maybe, and I'm not sure where all the locations are. But lots and lots of babies have been tested. And so I've tested about 15 babies from two months of age to 13 months of age and looked at all of these skills that we're talking about in this series, kind of in a different format, but certainly the same basic premise. And it was so much fun to watch these babies and to assess them and to see joint attention emerge. And so a child certainly at three or four months of age was not able to look when You know, one of the items on the test is that you have an object placed away from the baby so that he didn't see you put it over there, and then all of a sudden you do a big pronounced exaggerated 
point and a big head turn as you'd say, look, and you're measuring if the child is able to follow your point. And so it was so interesting to me, you know, when babies were nine months, ten months old, that they did that without any kind of real training. We didn't have to work for weeks and weeks and weeks to get their attention to do it. (laughs) They're typically developing. So that skill just emerged as it should have. And, you know, I'm so used to doing everything I can to get a child to include me in an activity and want me to be there that I was almost a distraction to these children as we were testing them because I can't keep myself from saying things like, wow, or, you know, again, putting my face right there where I want them to look and doing things. So, so many times these typically developing babies couldn't even really get through the task because they were too interested in what silly old Laura was doing. (laughs) And it just kind of goes to show you how easily and how naturally joint attention should emerge. I don't know if I said this at the beginning of the show or not, but with typically developing babies, that, that skill does come in at about nine months old, nine to 10 months old. And it's firmly established between 12 and 18 months old. So if you have a two-year-old who's not following your point, who's not naturally looking to try to see what you are talking about and how you are redirecting their attention, that is a big, big, big red flag. And we certainly want to work on that so that we can uh, move language along. All right, um, let's talk about what you might do after you get these strategies going. Let's say that you have worked on this with a child and you're seeing some progress. You're seeing him participate better. You're seeing him look at you longer. Things are moving along. What's your next step? Let me give you some ideas. And again, these are not things that you start with to get joint attention going, but there are things that I've picked up over the years that we might continue. Or again, it's kind of your next little step. Flashlight games are really, really fun, especially when a kid is almost three or three or four, so that kind of more um, that older toddler or younger preschooler. So what do I mean by a flashlight game? You turn the lights off and get it, you know, much darker than it would have normally been in your room, and then you use a flashlight to shine on a toy or an object, and then I shine it right back on my face and then right back on the toy and right back on my face. And what are we doing here? We're teaching the child, hey, that's what you do. You look at what you're doing, and then you look back at the adult and teach mom how to do that and play that. I have not played this game in a long time because I haven't had anybody that that is really appropriate for. But it's super fun, and I hope I get a kid soon that's ready for that because it's a great, great strategy here and a really, really fun thing to do. Uh, let me tell you when else, how else I've used that little flashlight game. When there have been older siblings who are directable enough to want to play with their baby brother or sister and help this move along, and you're able to really talk to them about what you're doing and really teach them strategies, you might teach them the flashlight game and say, okay, this is what I want you to do. Let's get out a few toys, and we're going to put them at various points in your bedroom, and you know, then we're going to turn off the lights, and this is how we play. And so you show them how you would play that with a child and you know, how you would talk about the things and how, how you turn the lights back on to play with whatever toy that you've looked at, and you might turn the lights back off after a few minutes and repeat the process with a new toy, and you're really teaching them what to say and how to play. Now, you can't really do this if you're working with a two-year-old or a three-year-old, you know, with a four-year-old or a five-year-old, but if you have a, a 
sister, usually is a sister, <laughs> who's seven or eight and who really wants to be involved in therapy. And again, they're very directable and teachable, and they they will be able to play this little game and use this um, effectively in between your therapy sessions. It's a great, great. Uh, game to teach an older sibling like that. Another way that I've played this is without the flashlight part, but just hiding interesting toys. And especially when I can do it where I'm hiding part of the toy and the child has to find the toy and then come back and bring it to me so that it can work. Something like uh, I have a Hot Wheels launcher motorcycle set. I think it's just called Hot Wheels motorcycle. I kind of call everything launcher. <laughs> It's a toy that I somehow set off and it flies away or rolls away and it launches and then uh, one of us has to go get it and come back to do the next part. That's a really good way to work on joint attention too because you're teaching the child get the part of the toy or get the toy that you have and then you have to include me as part of that. So they're bringing that piece back to you or they are they know that, gosh, I can't – can't make the motorcycle go again because Laura has the part that we hook the motorcycle on and then pull the lever back and it shoots the motorcycle across the room. I mean, you could do this with anything. If a kid wanted to play bubbles, you know, you're going to put the wand over on the other side of the room and he has to go get the wand and bring it back to you. Or if you are, let's say you've been playing with a balloon and you've just blown up the balloon and let it fly around, you know, you didn't tie it, and then the kid has to go get the balloon and bring it back to you so that you can blow it up again and, and have have another turn with that. So anything where you are making yourself part of that game, but where he absolutely needs you to be able to uh, do the next part or make the toy work in the way that it should. And again, you can't play these with these kinds of things with kids from the beginning who aren't including you at all. Because what do they do? They just go do that part without you, or they go do it themselves, or they don't even understand that that this is a play routine and they need the other part of what you have to make this toy work. So that's why I said these are strategies that you would use next. You wouldn't use them first, but once you've gotten some joint attention going and some eye contact going and that they respond to you, that's when you introduce these strategies. Another thing that you might try would just be placing objects out of reach or up high on a shelf or on, even on a counter. And again, <laughs> Some of our little guys are so ingenious that they, when there's something up high, they know how to get it. They will push a chair over. They will scale those cabinets by themselves. They will do everything they can not to include you. <laughs> so you may have to work pretty creatively to, to make yourself part of that, but do a lot of pointing at, at whatever the object is and saying, you know, if you put the cookies up high, you know, you're saying, oh, I see cookies. Look, look, cookies. And you're pointing to the cookies and you're directing their attention to the cookies so that they are looking at the cookies and looking at you. Now, let's just say one more thing about this eye contact part and the joint attention part. Do everything you can not to say, look at me, look at the cookies, look at me, look at the cookies. I mean, boy, we can get ourselves in a whole bunch of trouble doing that, trying to really force eye contact in that way or joint attention in that way. Try not to do that. But if you have to gently, <laughs> gently redirect a child's little head <laughs> so that he's looking, you may try that. But let me just say, don't get in the habit of doing that. And I've seen a lot of parents do it that way or a lot of therapists who aren't as interested in 
forming naturalistic uh, relationships with children who are just kind of bent on teaching, you know, just getting the eye contact part without really wanting this to be an internal process that a child learns how to enjoy. They may do a lot more physical redirection than than would be necessary. And again, so use your voice here, use your facial expressions, use whatever has worked to redirect a child's attention to, again, teach them how to include you and uh, what you're looking at. All right, so that's the end of today's show. We're a little bit short, so if you were counting on this for a full 60 minutes for your exercise today, we're going to be about, according to my calculations, eight minutes short on that. So keep going on your own. Uh, but that's the end of talking about joint attention. I'm so enjoying this series with all the things that we need to get going before we can realistically expect a child to use words to talk. I hope that you're, you're enjoying these tips. Do drop me a line if you have a question or a comment, and you can always send that to um, my email address, Laura, L-A-U-R-A, at Have a good week, and join me back here.